before picture, who we all were, who we once were. And it was a pretty ugly picture, to be honest. We were dead. We were captive. We were condemned. So this was not a pretty picture. Then last week, we saw the the hinge words on which all of reality, all of human history really hang. But God. And if you were here for that, I hope that you can still feel the warmth of God's mercy and great love. Because those words, but God, are not mere words of human invention. But those really are our only hope, that there is a God of mercy and love for sinners like us. By God, those who were dead were made alive, were raised up, were seated at Christ's right hand as living showcases of God's grace and his glory. So this was and is really, really good news for us, brothers and sisters. It's what we refer to as salvation. And today God wants to show us more about this grace that saves dead sinners. In a nutshell, God wants us to see the mechanism behind salvation. Even if we've heard it only once, never before, a hundred times, I think we can all be so quick to forget this truth of God's grace. So here, as I read, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 10 of Ephesians 2, this is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then today's text, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me? Father of all grace, please show us today how all of our attempts at self-salvation fall miserably short. Break through hearts that are closed to the truth of your grace. Hearts that may be forgetful of your grace or simply feeling too unworthy of this grace to even look you in the face. Show us that we are newly created 
in Jesus to walk in the ways that you have planned for us from eternity past. Don't let us miss the truths that you want to use to transform us and transform our living. We ask that you not do it because of us, but because of your glory that will be displayed through your son. Let your grace change us today, God, individually, each one of us, but also as a church united. Your grace needs to change us, and we pray that happen. In Jesus' name we ask it all. Amen. Today we're not going to talk about zombies or vampires. That would be silly. That would involve me explaining all about how these creatures are dead. Then, through some ungodly process, their bodies become re-energized to stand up and walk around. No, we won't mention any of that. We won't give airtime to the outdated but still overdone in books and in movies and TV shows, this notion that these beings are among us. No, we have an almost harder-to-believe topic to cover, if it weren't true, but it is because today we're going to talk about the dead in sin receiving something called salvation it's a word you've very likely heard before if you've been in church before this word probably came up in sunday school you might have learned how to spell it no you can't get to heaven without s-a-l-v-a-t i don't remember the rest but we're going to talk about instead of just the simplicity of the word. We're going to talk about what it means. We refer to being saved. In order to be saved, someone needs to be in a a truly precarious situation that needs saved from. I don't think any of us have heard about the guy in the next cubicle being saved from a paper cut. That would not make any sense. You do hear, though, that word saved when a lifeguard pulls someone out of the ocean who's going under one last time. It doesn't really do us any good to whitewash the reality of our spiritual deadness and the deadness that most of this world is currently under. Because without seeing that we're dead, we don't see a need for a resurrection. But God is the one who raises the dead. God is the one who takes the dead in their sins and gives them new life in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. So this is, this is real saving. The dead being made alive. Life granting favor being shown not to just people that are neutral or, or just not real excited about God, but to his antagonistic enemies. They are receiving God's favor and grace. This is a gift so good you couldn't have possibly thought about it yourself and you could never, ever, in your wildest dreams, repay it in all of eternity. This is newly recreated people given new purpose. A new walk so radically different from before that it can only point to God and his divine plan. That's what we not only get to hear about, but it's not a theoretical truth because we get to experience and participate in it as believers. So this is something perhaps difficult for us to believe because it is so amazing. The big idea in this text 
is that salvation is God's work of grace that both creates a new people and then propels them to walk in the good works that he prepared for them to do. As most good outlines, it has three points. And the points I tried to keep very simple. But I really want us to get this. Church, we need the truth of God's salvation. First of all, salvation is a work of grace. Salvation is a work of grace. We read it right there in verse 8. And Paul is actually repeating it because he had mentioned it previously at the end of Ephesians 2, verse 5. For by grace you have been saved. To get our bearings, let's think about where we are in redemptive history. This is good to do when looking at any text of Scripture. Is this being written in the Old Testament? Is this in the New Testament? Was this before Christ? Is this after? Is this during Christ's life? And let's think about, in that light, everything that has been said or written or done regarding salvation, this act of being saved. So Ephesians was written after the fall, after all the Old Testament promises that God gave to his chosen people from whom he said would come a future king that would rescue or would save. This is after Christ, the sinless son of God, lived, died, was raised, and ascended to heaven. This is after many of the people that had watched and waited for Christ's coming were disappointed because they thought there was going to be some political upheaval, that they would be freed from their political captors. But instead, through suffering, Christ was working to bring about a much greater and lasting salvation. This is also after the Spirit had been sent to God's people, the church created. This letter was written within just a couple of generations after Christ, the Savior of men, walked the earth and died. So in the history of God's work of redemption, this letter is written exactly where we are. After Jesus came to bring salvation, his saving work applied to sinners. But yet, the world around us still has problems. Not everything has been made right. So we are saved in Christ. We are being saved as God's work of sanctification, of purging sin, of drawing us closer to himself is being accomplished. So we are being saved. And this text and the rest of this epistle describe this work of God. This is an ongoing work as a result of Jesus one-time work for us on the cross. And then here in Ephesians 2, let's think about what salvation means because the word kind of almost comes out of nowhere. He hasn't mentioned salvation, as I mentioned, except for in verse 5. He says, by grace you have been saved. So we may ask the question, I think it's right to ask the question, what are we saved from? Why, why is this salvation necessary? And all we need to do is look back at the beginning of Ephesians 2. You were dead. Dead people need something outside of them to come and save them, to make things better, because dead people don't save themselves. In addition to being dead, we're held captive by Satan and our sinful flesh. 
We were under the damnation or punishment that we earned for our separation from God. So when the word saved shows up here in verse 8, let's not overlook it. This is the verb. This is the action word of the verse. If we looked at the verse and diagrammed it in English class, we would read, You have been saved. So this work of salvation, everything else describes how it happened, the process, what that means. But the crux is salvation is here. It has been accomplished. And no better news could be shared. But let's think and let's ask ourselves, how does this happen? How is salvation worked out in individual lives? How is it worked out in my life? That should be the question we're asking today. Well, there's two short, one-syllable words in this verse that have huge theological and life significance. They are grace and faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, grace is like the banner over this text. You could say it's the banner over the entire New Testament. But what is grace? Well, it's the only way salvation is even possible because it required a God of the universe that was gracious. I like to define grace as favor and mercy to the ill-deserving. And that might seem like a strange word, ill-deserving. Say, Josh, why don't you just use undeserving? Well, undeserving implies that we're, we're neutral. We just haven't done anything to earn it. On the contrary, we have done much to unearn it. We have demerited anything that God should give us by our lives. So grace is not something you earn. It is favor and mercy from God to the ill-deserving. Paul is going to drill this truth that we don't earn it. He's going to apply this over and over again through this text. You don't earn it. It's a gift. It's not of yourselves. You can't boast about it. It is of God beginning to end. If you earn something, if you get something as a result of something you have done, then it is no longer grace. Grace is the attribute of God by which sinners can be called saints through the sacrifice of another. So grace is God's favor, God's mercy in many different facets. Grace is how we are saved. Grace is how we are, are sanctified. It is common grace is something everyone, all of God's creation receive just because he is a gracious God. But saving grace is how God shows favor to lost people, to make them his children. You might be wondering then, what is the role of faith? It's the other big theological word in this verse. We could say faith is the means by which salvation is applied to individuals. The word basically means total reliance on another, to depend fully on another. Faith is more than a religious belief system, even though we often, I think in the modern vernacular, we say someone is a person of faith. 
And that's kind of morphed in our modern culture, I think, to mean that this person believes in some sort of a deity, perhaps. But it's far from the saving faith mentioned here. The faith mentioned here is to eliminate all striving, all working for, and all hope of self-salvation. Faith means I am completely relying, depending, putting my hope for salvation in another And that is the person of Jesus Christ. The one who died, was buried, and was raised so that sinners could have new life. We cling to him as our only hope of rescue. That's what faith is. To illustrate this, I think many have probably heard this illustration before. Faith is likened to something most of us do every single day. And that is sit down in a chair. Now, is Josie here? Josie, have you been testing chairs before you sit down this week? Did she fall in it again? The same chair? Okay. We had an incident last week, for those who didn't hear, where the chair she sat down in had had some of the screws removed. I don't know if it was a prank or just the chair was in disrepair, but sat down on it and fell through the, the base of the chair. And I hope she's okay. Is she all right? Okay. When we sit down, though, most of us do not test our chairs. I think Josie is definitely going to now. But we don't test our chairs. We don't kind of put a little bit of weight on them. Is that, is that going to work? And then sit down all the way. No, when we sit down, I think most of us probably just trust that a chair is going to hold us up. We put our weight on it. We don't leave our feet kind of under us tentatively just in case. It's an inexact but I think adequate comparison or picture to what faith in Christ is. Because when we rest in Christ for our salvation, it means we don't keep something kind of just in case Christ doesn't work out. We don't hang on to our family pedigree, our good works, our academic record, the kind of of father or mother we are. We don't hang on to those and say, I'm going to cling to those in case Jesus doesn't hold me up in the last day. No, to place faith in him is to remove all other hopes. The band Mumford and Sons sing this lyric. It seems that all my bridges have been burned. You say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with a restart talking about exactly how this grace thing works. Now, while they might not understand the full reality of God's grace, I think listening or or even hearing that lyric, they do seem to recognize that grace and faith involve the abandonment of all other recourse. Anything else I might rest in, I'm going to have a total reset when faith is moved from myself to another. So why do I refer to this then as a work? My outline point says salvation is a work of grace. Well, in this text, Paul really seems to be kind of using this word work as a sort of play on words. He talks about it's not our own doing. It's not a result of works. But we, on the other hand, are his workmanship and we're created for good works. So he uses work like three different times 
in different ways, referring to different things. And ultimately, I'm referring to the grace of God as requiring his working. Grace is not free. Grace comes at immense cost to God. Yes, this grace is free to us. We don't work for it or earn it. But due to our sin, it cost God his only son. It demanded no less than that the just and the triune God of the universe turn his divine wrath on himself. So our attempts to work for it are worthless. We read on in the passage that our grace, our faith, our salvation are all received as a gift. We read in verse number 9, actually the end of verse 8, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Literally, not your work, but God's is the gift. And if you've ever tried, working for a gift just doesn't work. Maybe the month or couple weeks before Christmas, do the kids behave just a little bit better because they know that Christmas is coming? Maybe they've heard about a Santa Claus that will put a coal in their stocking. Or maybe they just think that if they're good that time before Christmas, that maybe their gift will be larger. They'll have more gifts under the tree. But really, in the grand scheme of things, we don't work for gifts. Gifts are something given to us out of the generosity, the graciousness of another. But we might ask, looking at this passage, I ask, so I guess I'm assuming that others may ask. There's the use of an indefinite pronoun in the middle of verse 8. We're not going to dig too deeply into the English and especially not the Greek of it. But it's the word this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So what is this pointing back to? I already said it was an indefinite pronoun, which means it is not being precise as to what its antecedent is, what it's pointing to, and that, that makes it difficult. We can do a few things. We can look at um, the gender of the, the pro- pronoun and the nouns being referred to in the Greek. The sense, though, seems to indicate it's not referring to just the faith. It's not referring to just the grace. It is saying this, all of salvation, beginning to end, the grace we receive, the faith by which we believe in that for ourselves, all of that is the work of God. Salvation as a whole is God's gift. He doesn't provide the grace and we bring the faith. No, both the grace and the faith start and end with him. We can go to other passages like Acts 18:27 where it refers to the grace through which we believe. God's grace is given to us and that is the avenue through which we are able to even believe. As a result, we can't pat ourselves on the back, say, wow, that was a great decision to become a Christian. Because really, it was him from beginning to end. He opened our eyes to the truth of the gospel. He gave us the faith to believe in his son. All the glory then is eternally due to him. Paul breaks it down in very simple terms in Romans 11:6. 
Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. It's not grace anymore if you did anything to get it. Also, this isn't something we get as pay or as reward. I think most of us know what pay is. Pay is what we get for meeting obligations of work. A reward is something we earn for special merit. Maybe we do a really good job. Maybe we excel in our our targets for the year and we get a special reward. Both of these are totally excluded because it's nothing that started with us. That's what it means. This is not of yourselves. It didn't originate in us, but it is the gift of God. Now, many times when Paul writes, if we if we look in some of the other books of the New Testament, he wrote many epistles. Many times in Paul's writing, he's going to talk about works of the law. And that's really in light of the upbringing that Paul had. He grew up in Judaism. He grew up with with an understanding of the Old Testament law and Old Testament scriptures. And he really writes to that audience many times in his writings. But here he simply refers to works. He's not talking about the works of the law. And really works is a much broader word. It means everything. What we might think of as keeping God's commands or maybe just good things that we do. Being a philanthropist, giving a lot of our money to other people. Having a really good career and working hard at it and building a business from the ground up. Having a happy family that we work hard to maintain. Spending eight or 10 or 12 years of our life getting a prestigious education that we can point to the diploma. These are many things that I think even in our culture, as it would in the Ephesians culture, they would think of as work. It's something they've done that shows and proves their value, their contribution to society. And I think in our culture, that probably is more of what people think of. It's not really, have I kept God's commands? It's what kind of a contribution to society am I making? And how is God going to see that? And here, Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks directly to us in our culture and says, it's not of works. There's nothing you can do to make God desire you to show you grace. In fact, anything that's looked at for our satisfaction or our security. Maybe how we improve our own view of ourselves. We think if I do something, I'll be a better wife, I'll be a better mom, I'll be a better son or daughter, I'll be a better employee if I do this, I'll be a better person. What we're doing when we, when we set those things up is we're building an idol, a replacement God, something that's going to satisfy our idea of what we should be. And to you, this could be a work, something that you're trying to put up and say, God, look at this. Look at what I'm doing. I work hard 60 hours a week for my family. God, isn't that worth something in your economy? Many in this Ephesian culture probably looked to their good upbringing, their contribution to society as something God would look on favorably. Even really, really good things that we should be doing, fellow Christians, might be something we think are getting us a punch in our salvation card. Things like feeding the poor, 
digging wells in third world countries, caring for orphans. These are things we should be doing, but they in and of themselves earn no favor with God. That's what it means that it's not of works. We don't get God's attention as if he's scouting out potential Christians, watching for us to see what our performance is going to be, to see if we'll make it on his team. There's nothing attractive in us, and that should actually help us relax a little bit, to know that it's all of grace. There's nothing we do to take away from the grace. There's nothing we do to add to it. We can't look back at some situation that happened in our life and say, God would never love me because that happened. Because grace means that it is all of him anyway. And as for boasting, it's not of works that we cannot boast because of it. Anytime we think that God found something special when he saved us, anytime we look at someone else and kind of think, well, God saved me, but he's probably not going to save someone like that. That's really kind of like boasting, to think that there's something good in me that God found. And that may not be in this other person. We are all in need of a Savior. And grace is the only way we'll be saved. Paul in Romans 3 says, A very similar thing, basically the same thing, but he uses legal language in Romans. He's talking about justification, which really means a right standing before God. And listen, I'll read from Romans 3 to see how we are declared righteous. And listen for the key words that we've just talked about, grace, faith. Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation a sin sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. We've heard them both already a couple times. Faith and grace, a gift. At the end of that passage in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And at this point, I've probably spent 15 minutes of my message talking about grace and talking about faith. And and some of you may already be thinking, so I've heard this all before. So what? Why do I need to be reminded again another week about God's grace? I'm glad you asked. I have a few reasons, actually. Number one, it's the core of the Christian gospel. The core of the Christian gospel is that salvation comes from outside of us. And we don't just need a little bit of help. We need to be raised up from being dead in our sins. This is the Christian gospel that we need to keep hearing. But that the non-believing world that we live in the middle of, 
people at the grocery store, the gas line. They desperately need to hear. And many have never heard of this grace. Many still think of Christianity as a list of requirements that they need to keep to be good enough to merit God. When really salvation is a free gift offered by grace, received through faith, and resulting in a changed life that we'll see more of later in this text. The second reason I think we need to keep being reminded of grace is if I've ever stopped being amazed by grace, if it becomes ho-hum and commonplace and ordinary to me, it's very likely a problem that I'm not fully understanding what grace really is. If it becomes, oh, grace again, really? Then I'm not seeing it. I'm not getting it. Because I'm probably starting to fall back on seeing my contribution as larger than it really is when it's all of God. Such an amazing truth this grace is. And the third reason I think we need to be reminded continually of grace is because we're human and so prone to forget. We're so likely to fall back into patterns, even as Christians, saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years of earning our favor with God. With keeping a scorecard and seeing God's happy with me today. Ooh, that happened. God's really not gonna God's really not gonna watch out for me today. Look what I did. We must remember, brothers and sisters, our standing before God is only because of Christ. Our Father sees us in our Savior Jesus Christ with his perfect righteousness attributed to us. That's our legal standing. He also looks on us and sees us as his son. That's our relational standing. And if you today do not yet comprehend or or claim this faith in a crucified Savior, let this be our invitation to you today to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of the sin that has kept you from him and turn to him, resting all of your hope, all of your confidence on a Savior who saves by his grace alone. That's just the first point. The second point, salvation is a work of recreation. On your sheet, you might read that and say salvation is a work of recreation. Like, woohoo, we're going to go play in the park. Well, same word, but being created anew, to be recreated. Where do I get that from? Look in the text. Ephesians 2, verse number 10. Both of the last two points will come from this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We can take no credit for being created. You never hear of someone creating themselves. There is no such thing as self-creation. Creation implies being made by another. According to the scholar and Pastor John Stott, he said, Paul has described salvation in terms of resurrection from the dead, liberation from slavery, and a rescue from condemnation. And each one of those declares that the work is God's, 
For dead people can't bring themselves to life again. Captive and condemned people can't free themselves. But now he puts the matter beyond the slightest shadow of doubt. Salvation is creation, recreation, new creation. And creational language is nonsense, Stott says, unless there is a creator. Self-creation is a patent contradiction of terms. But beyond this being something that God does for us, which is huge, he uses a word here. We are his workmanship. Paul uses this word, handiwork, or creation maybe in some other translations. In the Greek, this basically means masterpiece. God's work of creative genius. Since we were remade in Christ with a new purpose for living, the great and gracious artist of all humanity has remade you, especially for his purposes. And don't think about the person sitting across the room from you. Think about you. Because if you are in Christ, every single one of you is a new creation. Created in Christ, completely new. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What exactly changes about us, though, in this new creation work of God? We don't get new skin cells, although I guess we do get those occasionally as our old ones die and rub off. So what is the new creation work? Well, in the first creation, remember, all mankind was created in Adam for a purpose, to bring glory to their creator. But through the fall, our ability to fulfill that purpose, while still required of us, was marred. So in the new creation, we are created again in Christ to fulfill our God-given purpose. And the entire walk, we'll see this in the rest of the passage, our entire walk was planned for us in advance. Our lives as Christians were given a new covenant heart to replace the heart of stone that we had before salvation. Hearts of flesh that beat the spirit indwelling in us to enable our obedience as we're baptized in the spirit at salvation. So though we're still imperfect, it is now possible for us to obey God's command. Why would God create us again? One commentator points out that new covenant believers created in Christ provides a new start within the world's history. More than simply putting us back to where we were before the fall, it involves rather the creation of a new humanity as men and women are brought to the destiny God purposed, but which before Christ had not been reached. And this new creation is going on right now. He continues in its widest sense. This includes the summing up of everything in Christ. That's going to happen one day in a new heaven and new earth reality. But it's already begun as a movement in history in the lives of men and women. These lives 
as new creations are to be characterized by good works. Which is right into our third point. Salvation results in a walk of good works. As new created people, created in Christ, we are created for a specific purpose. Let's finish verse 10 out. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The truth of this part of the text started out by sort of flooring me, just amazing me. Then it humbled me. Then it challenged me. And I'm really not sure how I missed this point before, but I have. Not, not the good works part, that God has created us to do good works. I've heard that before. And I definitely have recognized the calling of God's new people to obey and to follow him with their lives. And really, that alone is convicting. That's, that's challenging to us. But what caught my attention, and what I think I missed before is this. God not only planned us being called out from darkness to light in election. We learned about that in Ephesians 1. But God also planned and prepared the works that I would do as his child. Up front, ahead of time, beforehand, it's not something he planned at the last minute. It rather seems to indicate he planned and ordained and prepared the good works we would walk in before the foundation of the world. That's humbling. Here's how one author put it. If believers are God's work, then all their activity must come from God. And so can be thought of as already planned and prepared in God's counsel. Not just their initial reception of salvation, which is by grace. We've already seen that. But the whole of believers' lives, including their practical, ethical, which is good works, activity, is to be seen as part of God's purpose. The thought of verse 10 is that the good works were already there. Already there. And when through his grace God made believers alive and raised them up and seated them with Christ, he created them for these very works. God created us for good works he had already planned ahead of time that we would be able to do. This... uh, I can think of a couple analogies in my head. One of them is not great, but it just comes to mind. How many are into robots? Not like you're a robot, but like robots. So robots are something that you can program ahead of time. And I came along a little bit too late, I think, in my education, but it seems like engineering students now get to do cool stuff with robots. They can build robots that then go in these competitions and they kind of are told like, okay, you need to have your robot be able to like follow this line on the floor or be able to look at these targets and go and do certain activities. And they're told kind of roughly what the robot needs to be able to do. And then they go back and they build their robot and program it and do the software. And then comes the competition day where they set the robot free to do its activity and kind of hope that they got it right. This isn't like that. God knew when he created us every work he would call us to do and gave us the 
in indwelling ability by his grace to be able to do that. That's another way of saying there's nothing that God could call you to do that he has not created you with the ability to do because of Christ. Another analogy, who's ever moved in like a housing sense, like moved from one place to another? Who's moved like from state to state? So a little bit further, who's moved to another country at some point? Maybe, okay. I grew up moving quite a bit when I was younger. So before I was 14, I think I moved five times in four different states. Some of you have probably moved more than that. That might not sound like a lot. But when moving to a new area, you probably know that having a place to live lined up ahead of time is just very helpful. It takes a lot of stress off. So having a place to put your stuff, a place to sleep at night, all of that is very, very helpful. If you're going to visit someone, having a place prepared ahead of time for you, knowing that they have a bedroom and, and a place for you to shower and towels and all of that lined up, this gives you reassurance and it comforts you. Imagine a cross-country move. You get to the destination and there's a house all ready for you when you arrive. It's perfect. It's furnished with all of your stuff or nicer. It's painted and decorated in your style. The fridge is stocked with the kinds of foods that you like to eat in a full pantry. How nice would that be? How comforting? How, how much would that let you know that someone else had put a lot of thought and work and effort into that? Now, similarly, but even more amazing and comforting, the same God who created us, the same God who recreated us in Christ, prepared our works ahead of time specifically for us. One more quote. To say that God has prepared the good works in advance is to stress in the strongest possible way that believers' good deeds can't be chalked up to their own resolve but are due solely to divine grace. It's grace all the way. Now, in case you're wondering, this is not total determinism. God has prepared the good works in advance in order that we might walk or live in them. The human activity of walking is still necessary. The actual living out of God's purpose in the world has to take place. And that's where I want to finish. We're created with works specifically in mind by a sovereign and loving and gracious God. But we still have to walk in them. This is, this is the imperative. This is the command that comes with the gospel promises we've been looking at. Some today might be complacent, comfortable, and need to hear this command from God. Others today might be fearful and need to hear the promises in order to be comforted. May the Spirit apply this text to everyone in his way. Now, we're not saved by works. We already covered that. Nothing we can do can add to our salvation. But we are saved to works, or to be more exact, we're saved to a walk that includes works. Verses 1 and 10 form an inclusio. If you were here with us through the book of Genesis, we got kind of excited about that word every time it showed up. 
it basically means they're like bookends. Verses 1 and verse, verse 1 and verse 10 both talk about our walk. In verse 1, our walk, when we were dead, was following the course of this world. Now our walk that we've been newly created and given life in Christ is a new walk. It has a different flavor. It has totally different goals and pursuits and desires. We should be the kindest, most open, most generous, most joyful people on the planet as a result of God's grace in us. And this may put restrictions on our lives. This may do some, this may force us not to do some things because God has done a work in us to save us from sin and from following our own ways. This walk, though, is based completely on our new identity, on who we are in Christ, a new people newly created to love and to serve God as expressions of worship to him. Philippians 2 covers this, this very um, profoundly, I think. We're in verses 12 and 13. It reminds us that we're called to work out our own salvation. That doesn't mean work to become saved, but the act of being saved, once we are saved, does involve work on the part of a believer. But also in the next verse, it tells us that it's God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ultimately, this is a synergistic. This is, this is a together working, us working in conjunction with God working in us to accomplish his purpose in our life, to work out fruit in his children as they walk in him. To paraphrase one author that described the Christian life as a giant tree with two giant root structures, he commented that Satan tends to attack believers in one of two areas, either at the root of their faith or the root of their diligence. I think that's so true. He tends to attack us either at the place of our faith, what are we resting in, what are we trusting in, or at the root of diligence. Because the Christian walk is one of work, is one of effort, is one of spiritual discipline. Paul says, I struggle to do this growing in grace. I struggle daily. This is the these are the two sides of the coin. If we emphasize one and not the other, we are at serious danger of, of heresy even. But we work with God working in us. What does this look like? It probably helps to be a little practical in this, in this part. What does it look like to walk in the good works that God prepared and created us for? Well, it means many different things. Some of it is going to be the same for everyone. It means that we have the work of sanctification going on in us. That's a big word that just means growing in obedience to Scripture, displaying the, the fruit of the Spirit. But at the same time, some of this good work is going to look different for different people. It's going to be following the Spirit's leading towards specific opportunities to do good works. Much of the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to describe this work further. So um, I'm not going to go into all of that since we'll have weeks coming to look at what does the Christian walk look like. Most of the book so far has been God drawing back the curtain to show us who he is and therefore who we are in Christ. Coming up, he's going to start to show us who the church is, who this gathered people are that have been called out and given new hearts 
And then he will walk through specific areas of the Christian life, be they in the church, be they in the home, in the workplace. And he's going to draw out what it means to walk as God's new people in these different spheres of life. Do you ever feel like you're plateauing in your walk with Christ? Scripture gives us areas to check, and I want to just mention these two as as practical things to be thinking of. Areas to help you in your walk of good works that God prepared beforehand. Scripture refers to worshiping regularly with the body God called you to. That involves worshiping. It also involves fellowshipping, knitting yourself with a local group of believers for work and ministry and accountability. Are you actively pursuing the spiritual disciplines? As I mentioned, the Christian life does involve work, working out our salvation. The disciplines, things like prayer, scripture reading and meditation, memorizing scripture. How about are you pouring your life into someone else or being poured into by someone else? It's called discipleship. Are you talking to others that you know about the grace that you've received? If we feel like we've plateaued in our walk with Christ, it helps to look at some of the specific areas that he's given us in his word and shown us how we can have the means of grace, even even gathering with the body for the Lord's table and taking the elements together with the body. These are ways that God shows and reminds us of his grace in us as his people. As we conclude, I want everyone to take a minute and think about these almost two different sides. Because this text talks so much about grace, how our salvation is all of God. So it's worth asking ourselves whether we are resting today in God's grace, in his work. When you hear about God's grace, does anxiety or amazement characterize your response? Does it make you more anxious like, when I have to do more? Or does it just amaze you that God has done all of this? for you and and you've done nothing to earn it. What practical things can you start doing maybe to regain a fresh view of gospel grace? Some practical things that you can be reading or talking to others about. But also, the other part of this text is all about the good works that God has created and prepared for us as his people to do. And maybe you've become complacent. Maybe maybe the Spirit is challenging you today about just getting comfortable and not really wanting to put any effort into the Christian life. You're so busy not earning your salvation that you've stopped disciplining your heart and mind for godliness. You may get grace. You understand that, but your walk in good works isn't what you know it should be as a new creation in Christ. So maybe what you need to ask is not to gain God's favor, but what do I need to do to draw closer to God in fellowship and obedience? 
So before we pray, I encourage you just to quiet all of our hearts before God and ask his spirit to show us how he wants us to respond. And he'll look to us as we humble our hearts before him. So let's take that moment and then I'll pray to close. Dear God, our Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace that raised us from being dead in our sins. That gave us hearts that are able to love and serve you as you created us to do. Thank you that we don't have to do anything to earn this. It is all of you. Thank you for giving us faith to respond that when we heard the good news of the gospel, Lord, many of the eyes in this room have been opened to that good news, have clung to the cross of Jesus as their only hope of of salvation. Thank you for sending your son to be our savior. I pray, God, today that we would have a fuller understanding by what your spirit is showing us, a fuller understanding of grace, that it would be more than just a a word to us, but it would have some bones to it and some flesh, and we would understand. I pray that it would change how we live that we would not live in self-condemnation or in self-salvation, but really see your grace as accomplishing everything we need. And then I pray, Father, that you would help us to walk in the way that you have for us, that we would do it cheerfully because that's what you've created us for. You've made us custom designed us for good works that you planned for us. So I pray that our eyes would be open, that we'd be looking for opportunities to do your work. And for all of us, that means being in your word and understanding what you've commanded us to do as a people of God. And that also could be some specific things for specific individuals in here that you're calling to to very exact works that you have prepared for them. And God, I don't even know what some of those things are, but I know you do, and you may be pressing that on individual hearts. God, I leave the rest of this service to you to do as you are pleased to do. You are such a gracious God. Pray that we would follow you by being gracious people and pointing others to your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.